Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Praise God. I don't believe you. How many, how many got the victory tonight? Uh, yeah. Amen. We got to go to uh, Revelation real quick tonight. Maybe this heat is slowing you down today. Well, I want to speed you up before we get back to bed tonight. And uh, I want to get you excited once again to live for God and to do something for Him. Uh, If you have been here for the last couple of Sunday nights, you know already that we are in the midst of a Sunday night series of sermons titled Regarding Revelation. And we are uh, looking into the book of Revelation, and we're taking it verse by verse and line by line uh, to extract as much truth as we possibly can out of the Word of God. We've already done uh, three messages and want to continue with a fourth, part four tonight, as we look into Revelation chapter 2, if you join me there tonight. In this series so far, we have looked at several topics We've looked at the need for revelation, what this book is intended to do. It's a revelation, uh, not just of future events, but really this book is a revelation of Jesus himself. It is in many ways an autobiography. It is a revelation from Jesus, about Jesus, and to his church. And that is why it is a book that is worthy of our attention and our study and our focus tonight. And it is worthy for us to spend the time and energy and effort to understand. Uh, Part two, we looked at some of the history of the Apostle John who wrote this revelation or put pen to paper. We looked last week at what it was like to have an encounter with a risen Savior. It was a life-altering moment for, for the Apostle John. And I would encourage you, if you haven't heard some of these messages, we do have them all posted on our church website. And you can go back and listen to them. You can also subscribe to our sermon podcast. Uh, That way they'll be delivered directly to your phone whenever they uh, post a new one. But what we find now is we turn to chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is mostly an introduction. It's a declaration of what this book is about to be about. And as we jump into chapter 2, we enter into a new section of this book. And it's almost a section that doesn't quite belong. It seems a little bit out of place. Uh, Once we get past this little section, we jump into the deep, heavy stuff of Revelation, the beasts and the seals and the uh, the trippy things that uh, if you were were on illegal substances, might make you real excited. But uh, before we get to that uh, amazing portion of Scripture, uh, we get to read some letters that are written 
to various churches uh, there that were active in the time that this book was written. And this is a very special uh, section of this book because what we have in the New Testament, right? We, we understand what the New Testament is made up of. We have four books at the beginning of the New Testament that are called the Gospel accounts. They are eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those are intended to uh, just tell the story of Jesus. The fifth book of the New Testament is the book of Acts, which in large part is just a history of the early church. It's a historical narrative and tells us the events that took place after Jesus returned back to heaven and the church now has to be established on the earth. But from after the book of Acts, from Romans forward and all the way to the end of Revelation, all of those other books in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are letters that were written by the various apostles. Letters that were written by Paul, by John, by Peter, by Jude, by James, the brother of Jesus. And these are letters that are written from the apostles to the churches, and they're very helpful for us. Helpful in knowing how to live for God, how to have church, how to have leadership, how to have the Holy Spirit active. There's, uh, there's so many topics that come from what are known as the epistles, the letters that are written by the apostles. But as we look now into chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, we get something very special. We get epistles written to the churches by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not a human opinion. This is not, uh, this is not just the Apostle Paul being used by God or Peter being used by God. This is now Jesus himself speaking directly to the churches of various cities. And there are seven churches that we want to look at. Uh, we're not going to get through all of them in this evening's sermon. But I hope to be able to put a highlight on the things that Jesus says to his church because there are some things in these letters that Jesus writes to these seven churches that are not just good for churches 2,000 years ago. There are some incredible things that can impact your life right here, right now in 2019 and can have powerful effect on our church and our body, our members in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to, uh, to uh, take a look at Revelation chapter 2. This is a message I've titled, The Loveless Church, as we look at this letter to the, book, to the church in Ephesus. Let's read together, beginning with verse 1, again, Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles, and they are not. You have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That is a powerful uh, commendation that Jesus gives. Nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you, your ears should perk up right about now, that you have left your first love. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Some incredible truth here tonight. Let's pray. Father, we come by the blood of Jesus. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your word that encourages and corrects and rebukes us. I'm praying tonight that we would receive from your word and from your spirit tonight. God, we thank you for all that you're going to do in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. There are some people who might be tempted to think that God doesn't care about the Virginia Beach Potter's House at 1064 Lynn Haven Parkway. Uh, We are not a massive uh, congregation. We don't have a thousand people here. We don't have millions of dollars flowing through our bank account. Uh, We don't have a lot of things that other churches might have. But here is something tonight that gives me great encouragement when I begin to read Jesus' descriptions of these seven churches, that he was aware of the intimate details of what was happening in each and every one of these churches. If we are tempted to think that God has forgotten the potter's house, that God has forgotten the Christian fellowship churches, that God has forgotten us because maybe we are discouraged or maybe because we don't have as much fruitfulness as we want. I want to encourage you tonight that Jesus is not only aware of what's happening here tonight, but he is intimately involved in every single thing that's happening here. Do you believe that tonight? This is what we see in the scripture as Jesus begins to speak to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I see your labors. I see the sweat and the tears. I see the things that you are doing. And that gives us incredible comfort to think and to remember tonight that Jesus is aware of what we are doing. It's easy for us to think sometimes, oh, we had a concert last night. Yeah, we had like 20 people here last night. It was fun. We had loud music. But in the grand scheme of things, is it really going to make a difference? We start to think like that sometimes. Oh, we had one visitor. Yeah, they showed up. A few people, yeah. And and we say, oh, we had our smoke machine going, and we had our little lights flashing. And and we think, nah, are we really making an impact? Are Are we really doing anything for the Lord? Tonight, I want to remind you, if Jesus knew what was happening in the church in Ephesus, he certainly knows what's happening here. He certainly knows that in 2019, there's a group of believers who still believe God to do something in our city. Let me describe to you the situation in the city of Ephesus as this letter was written to them. Ephesus was a Greco-Roman city right there on the Mediterranean shore of what is today modern-day Turkey. In that time, it was called Asia Minor. 
Uh, I know uh, that Dave has been to the city of Ephesus. I know that I've been to the city of Ephesus, maybe a few others who have toured the area. Uh, today, if you were to visit this place, uh, you, it, it's, it's uh, separated from the sea by several miles. But back in the time of Christ, it was a port city. The sea uh, came right up to the edge of the city, much like it does here in Virginia Beach. And it was a big port city. It was a crossing roads for many great uh, uh, ships that would come in and out. And it was, was, would be a trading station. Uh, but more than that, the city of Ephesus was home to many different religious systems, including the temple of the princess or the goddess called Artemis, also called Diana. Now, this was a big deal. You might not have ever heard of the goddess of Artemis or Diana, but let me tell you why this was such a big deal, especially in the time that this book was written. So there was a, uh, there was a temple that had been built to Artemis, to this goddess of the Greek Roman Empire. And this uh, temple that had been built was at the time considered one of the seven great wonders of the world. You just think about that for a minute. Today, the seven great wonders of the world include like the Grand Canyon. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? I mean, there's visitors constantly. There's people there There's come from all around. This is kind of the same atmosphere of that city of Ephesus. People would come from all over the Greek and Roman Empire to visit Ephesus simply to see this incredible temple that had been built for a false goddess. Now, included... In the worship of this false goddess was a lot of nasty stuff. Included in this cult was the, well, we can just say that there was temple prostitutes. And part of the way that you would show your affection for this goddess would be to engage with them. And to offer sacrifices. Many times they had blood sacrifices uh, to uh, this false goddess. So, uh, needless to say, as we think that we're living in the most sexualized generation that has ever been on the face of the earth, we're very wrong about that. We think that no Christian has had to endure the kinds of things that we've had to endure. At least, maybe that's true in Western society. But that is not true when we consider the history of the world. The city of Ephesus was ground zero for a sex cult of the worship of goddess Diana, where her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, do you see why Jesus would begin this letter by commending the people in that church? He says, I see your works. I see that you have remained faithful even when it's very hard to do that. Even when there's a culture around you that says you're really stupid for not doing the things that we do. Boy, it's, it's, it's a good thing that we don't have to deal with that anymore, right? I believe that this, uh, this city of Ephesus very much reflects a culture that we live in today. This city would also be a very uh, important city, not only to the Apostle Paul. He is the one who started this church about 50 years before this letter has been written. So think of that. There has been a, a group of believers there in this city worshiping God and serving the Lord for about 50 years. The original generation of Jews that had gotten saved in the city of Ephesus now they've had children. Now they've brought more people into And so now we have maybe a second or even a third 
generation of believers. So this is not a new church. This is a church that has some age, some experience, been around the block a few times, experienced some victories and some setbacks. This would be a special city for the Apostle John, who is penning the letter because he probably lived there. It is believed that it was this city that John lived in and also brought the mother of Jesus to live with him, Mary, until he had been exiled. And so Ephesus is the first city that Jesus addresses in this book of Revelation. And he says uh, that this is one among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we looked at this last time. This is a symbolic uh, picture of what the church is supposed to be. A lampstand is like uh, what we would think of today, like a spotlight. What is, the, what is the purpose of a spotlight? To shine and bring clarity and truth in a dark situation. Maybe you've seen a, 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 a Broadway performance or even a concert scene. Uh, you go into a dark environment and there's a, there's a bright spotlight that shines down from the top. And it puts attention and focus on what's happening on the stage. And as soon as that spotlight hits the center stage, all the attention is focused, right? the action that's on the stage in the same way the golden lampstand represents what the church is supposed to be doing we are called to shine light into the darkness of a pagan and lost generation and so the seven churches are called the seven golden lampstands everybody got that and the seven stars that are in his right hand these are symbolic of the seven leaders of those seven churches. And so these seven letters are being written to be read by the seven pastors or leaders of these various different churches. Everybody with me so far? All right, now let's look at the commendations that Jesus gives to this church. As I mentioned, verse 2, he says, I know your works, I know your labor, I know your patience. This is a hardworking church, y'all. They've been around for about 50 years serving the Lord in a pagan culture. And that takes a lot of energy out of a church. It requires much patience to serve the Lord in that kind of environment. And Jesus goes on to say, you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and they are not, and having found them liars. What, the, what we should pull out of that scripture is this, that there have been a battle in that church, a battle to remain pure in an impure generation. Boy, I'm glad that's not a problem anymore. Do we not still have the exact same battle on our hands every day that we live in 2019? As our culture is descending away from biblical standards and biblical morality, where it is okay now for, uh, for dude to marry another dude and for them to invite you to their wedding? Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? Do you take this other man to be your lawfully wedded? And they want you to come not only to support, but to celebrate. There's a lot of pressure involved there, isn't it? No wonder Jesus commends them for holding a line for remaining pure, for not allowing the, the pagan culture 
to begin infiltrating a holy place. I've said before that it's just fine for a boat to go out into the ocean. But we've got a problem when the ocean starts getting in the boat. The church is called to be out in the world, right? But at the same time, we are called to keep the world out of the church. The standards of the world, the ways of the world, the morality of the world. We've got another standard, don't we? And we are called ever more than before to shine the light of Christ, to be the golden lampstand in our generation. Jesus commends the church of Ephesus. He says, good job, guys. It might have made you unpopular. You might be looked at as bigots. You might be the, 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 the home. They might call you names, the homophobes. They might, uh, uh, they might talk bad about you on Twitter. But I'm telling you, you did right. Now, let me ask you this question. When you stand before God, what's going to be worth more to you? The praises of a lost generation? Or the commendation of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says, good job, church. I know your works, your labor, your patience. And you have tested these and found them liars. See, this is why we practice standards. Somebody say amen. Amen. This is why we don't allow uh, just anybody to come up in here and do whatever they want. We have standards in a church. We have, if you, if you want to come and uh, play a guitar, if you want to come and play a piano, you want to sing some songs for the church, great, you got some talents, wonderful, but are you living right? Are you living for God? That's important. We have standards. We must be discerning. Remember the setting that they're in. The goddess Artemis and her temple prostitutes practicing day and night right down the street. No doubt that there would be people who would try to come into the church at that time. They'd get done at the the goddess's temple and they'd walk into the church of Ephesus and say, hey, what are you all doing in here? Is there a place for me? Yeah, there's a place for you if you repent and you turn from your sins and believe in Jesus, then you can sit right in the front row and we'll welcome you. But if you don't repent then you are a liar and you are of the world and you can't masquerade pretending to be both of the world and of Christ. That doesn't work. Jesus commended his church for the steadfast defense of holiness in the face of sexual perversion all around them. Let me just mention, because it's such a prevalent problem, you cannot lift up your hands and praise worship in church, and then the next moment go home and look at pornography. You cannot do that. That does not work. You cannot masquerade, and you think that you've got it under control, but I'm telling you, it will come out. It'll come out in the way that you serve the Lord. You'll be limited. Not only that, the Bible says that when you cover your sins, you will not prosper. Jesus commended his church for keeping the standards, for keeping the holiness. And I want to tell you that the approval of Christ is more important than the approval of the world. 
in a generation where perversity is, is on every hand. And not only do, do, does this lost generation demand, make demands on a Christian. Have you seen what they're doing to Chick-fil-A? Because five years ago, the owner of Chick-fil-A came out and he said, I support traditional marriage. That's all he said. And because of that, he has become a target. They call the entire organization and their leadership bigots. They are forcing them to, uh, to leave out from certain areas of the country. We don't want Chick-fil-A in New York City. There's airports that won't take them. I say good for Chick-fil-A because they're holding a standard. They're standing up for what's right, and God will bless it. God has blessed it. The approval of Christ is far more important than the approval of this world. Acts 5.29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. I want to tell you, this is going to become more and more of a battle as time goes by. Unless there's sweeping revival in our generation, you're going to have to confront this in your life. And just remember, when they stood up for what was right, Jesus said, good job. That is, that is exactly what I'm talking about. The other thing that we see that he commends them on is in verse 6. But this you have that you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is very interesting to me. Now, we don't exactly know what the deeds of the Nicolaitans were. We don't exactly even know who these group of people are. But we do know this. Whatever they were involved in was ticking Jesus off. He was not about that life. And what I love about this is that Jesus says, you hated the deeds of these people, which I also hate. This is a mark tonight of our relationship with Jesus. When we begin to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. This is what it means to be a disciple is to have discernment. To understand that when, you, when something comes up on your screen and recognize, oh, Jesus, you probably hate that. And you make a judgment. Say, I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to pass this on. I'm not going to share. I'm not going to give it more airtime. I'm going to speak out against it. It is a war, isn't it, on social media? It is a war in our culture. When something comes on the screen or on the, the, sea, the, the channel, the show that you're watching on Netflix... Some of you have been watching Nicolation Netflix. Things that if Jesus was sitting next to you watching that, you'd be embarrassed. You'd be ashamed. And we ought to hate the things that he hates and love the things that he loves. Is there anything that you've been allowing in your life that Jesus just hates? Nicolation YouTube? I'm just going to take a drink real quick. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
as disciples, as a successful church, if we want to be commended by the Lord, we must be able to do this to judge what is good and true versus what is evil and false. That's called discernment, beloved. As a new convert, you've got to learn how to discern. You've got to learn that you can read some things, but there are some things you can't read. There are some places you can go. There are some places that you should not go. That's called discernment, knowing your weaknesses. So let's look then at corrections. Jesus commends them for their hard work, for their labors, for their discernment. He says, you guys are doing a great job at this, this, this. But then he turns in verse 4. Thank God that he does. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. I want to take a moment and remind you that Jesus does correct his church. It pleases the Lord to correct us sometimes. Don't you know we need some correction? Especially like this morning when I talked about you're on the path that leads to destruction. You need a correction in your course. If you are on a collision course, you must receive correction. And we are so grateful tonight that He is faithful through His Spirit, through His Word, through His messengers, through other believers, that the Lord will correct you. Now, this is true on a personal level. Sometimes you've got to be able to receive correction without getting an attitude, without, uh, without turning red and becoming uh, uh, belligerent with people. Jesus even corrected his church. I can imagine if Jesus tried to correct some of you, it wouldn't work very well. Even if Jesus, the perfect, sinless son of God, said, hey, I wouldn't do that if I would. Excuse me? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Oh, wait. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Now, I want to jump into exactly what he corrected in this church of Ephesus. Look at what he says, that you have left your first love. Now, this is so interesting to me, because here's a church in Ephesus, as we've already seen, that's very faithful, that's very busy, that is indeed upholding the standards of righteousness and purity, that is involved in their community. They've got programs. They've got things that they're doing. They're staying active. They're pushing against the tide of their generation. But with all of that busyness, there's one thing that they've forgotten. It's the most important thing. They've forgotten why they're doing it. Boy, I'm glad that's not a problem here in 2019 in the Church of Jesus Christ or in the Potter's House. Is it possible still today that we can do all the right things for the wrong reason? Is it possible that we can have all the things that we do and do them for the wrong purpose? It reminded me of that scripture that Jesus told us in Matthew 16, that parable, verse 26, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Sing it, Toby Mac. I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. This is exactly the slippery slope that the Ephesian church has now found themselves on. Remember, 
This is not a new church. They've got some time. They've got some experience. They've got some, uh, some, some time under their belt. They've got some victories in their past and some failures. They've been through a few things. They've had a few generations now of Christians. People have grown up in the church. We, they, there's, there's teenagers that grew up in the church. And now they're having to take on the burden of the daily tasks of doing church. And somewhere in the mix, they've lost the reason why they were doing it. It's an interesting danger that is still alive and well in the church of Jesus Christ. They become so wrapped up in the things that they're doing that they have forgot the one that they are serving. They've left their first love. Pastor Mitchell has preached entire sermons about this truth. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And when the main thing is no longer the main thing, then something else will become the main thing. Something that shouldn't be the main thing. This has a generational problem. I wonder tonight, has the church become so wrapped up in other priorities that we begin to neglect our first love? What about you tonight? Do you remember what it was like when Jesus saved you? Do you remember the passion that you felt? Do you remember the gratitude that you had? See, this is the reason why we fall out of love with Jesus. Did you know that? The reason that our, our passion dwindles, the reason why we no longer serve the Lord or love the Lord like we used to, this is the reason right here. It's because when we first got saved, we understood how big of sinners we were. You remember what Jesus taught when the woman came uh, with bearing the, the, the flask of alabaster and she took it, this is worth a year's worth of wages. What do you make in a year? That's what she took and broke on Jesus' feet. And poured it all out on her, on Jesus. And they looked at her and they said, especially Judas, of course it had to be Judas, said, this is a waste of money. We could have sold that thing and, you know, given to the poor. But Jesus defended her. And remember how he defended her. This is in Luke chapter 7, verse 41. He he began to defend her by telling a parable. He said there was a creditor who had two debtors. So get the picture. There's a, a, a loan officer, and there's two people who owe him money. One of them owed $500. I'm just going to change it to dollars for a minute. One of them owed $500. The other one owed $50. And when they had nothing, verse 42, when they had nothing to, with which to repay, in other words, pockets were empty, and so the creditor forgave them both. He said, you know what? I'm feeling generous today. You know what? It's okay. I'm just going to forgive these debts. And Jesus asked this question. He said, which one will love him more? That's a very simple parable, isn't it? And Jesus tells us the meaning of the parable. Verse 47, he says, I say to you, her sins, this is the same woman who broke the alabaster on Jesus' feet, her sins, which are many, were forgiven. Therefore, she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. 
This is the reason why the first love begins to be neglected in our lives. Are you still with me tonight? When this woman felt the weight of her sins and then being forgiven, there was no price too high for her. There was no act of worship that was too extravagant. She looked at that alabaster box, the one that had been passed down to her from her mother, probably from her mother, a family heirloom. She said, that is worthy of my Lord and Savior Jesus. You know why? Because she loved him. She remembered her first love. She's willing. Do you remember when you first got saved? You'd be willing to go anywhere, do anything. Middle of the night, pastor, what do you need? Sweep the floor, I got it. Now, can barely get people on outreach, you know? Have we begun to neglect our first love? Have we begun to forget what Jesus did for us? And the, 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 the thing that is so deceiving is that we can fill our lives with so many busy works, busy activities for Jesus. Yeah, I can show up. I can put myself in a chair. I can even pick up a Bible twice a week and pretend that I'm doing something for the Lord. But really, have we lost our love for the Lord Jesus? See, we begin to fall out of love. We begin to lose this first love when we lose the revelation of forgiveness. Do you remember how wicked of a person you once were? Do you remember the feeling of being received by God? You didn't deserve that. You, you figured out that you were a sinner. I remember hearing this for the first time and understanding it when I was about 16 years old, that I was a sinner. I had never, like, I mean, I'd heard that, but I never, like, processed it in my brain that I deserved hell. And when I figured that out, I don't want that. What must I do, Lord? Please save me. And he did. And that's what changed my life. When I realized how wicked I was. But now, you know, years later, what can happen to a church and what can happen to an individual Christian is we build up a reputation for ourselves. We build up a savings account. All of a sudden, we're uh, dignified. Yes. I know how to tie a tie these days. See, I'm not just some sinner. <laughs> yeah. And yes, we should be different than we used to be. But the love for Jesus does not come from our activities that we do for him. Rather, it is our love for Jesus that should be the inspiration for our activities. It is our love for Jesus that will get us to the prayer room on time. It is our love for Jesus that will help us to knock on that next door after we've had five of them slammed in our face. It is our love for Jesus that will keep you tithing even when you're short for the month. It's your love. And if you are doing these things without love, it's only a matter of time until they stop. This is why Jesus called out the church of Ephesus. He says, listen, I see that you are very busy, but you are in a danger zone right now. 
because you're doing these things for the wrong reason. You're doing these things without love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of angels without love, I'm like a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. He says you can have all of these activities and fill your life with all this business and you can even label it as Christian activity for the Lord. But without love, it is useless tonight. Have you forgotten how sweet forgiveness truly is? Grace and mercy that you don't deserve? When you remember that, you will find that first love again. Jesus encouraged the church in Ephesus, verse 5 as we close. He said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. This is interesting to me. He said, if you want things to change, then you've got to change the things that you're doing. See, this is the problem many Christians run into. They want, we want things to change. We want the church to change. We want our experience to change. We want marriage to change. We want our children to change. But we're just going to do the same old thing that we're used to. Amen. Isn't that the very definition of insanity? Doing the same thing again and again and again and expecting different results. Amen. Jesus speaks to his church and he says, listen, if you want things to change, you're going to have to start doing the things that you used to do. If we want our hearts to be filled with the love of Jesus, if we want every day to be an adventure for the Lord once again, maybe we should start praying and fasting like we used to pray and fast. Maybe we should start giving extravagantly. Maybe we should keep the tithe for ourselves and give the 90%. Well, that's a crazy new convert idea. If we want things to change, we can't continue doing the same things. If we want to return to our first love, we've got to do the things that we did when we first loved. Jesus gave them a strong warning. He said, if you don't repent, he says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You say, Jesus, would you do that? Yes. Would, you re would you remove the Ephesian church out of the city of Ephesus? Would you really shut down a church like that? I say absolutely he would. Amen. If a church is no longer serving its purpose, no longer living for love and loving its neighbors and loving God, if a church is just busy, then what's its purpose? The true church of Jesus, the, the invisible church, the church that is the general church, will always continue. And I've seen churches go through changes with time. Jesus is saying, hey, if this church is no longer doing what I need it to do, then I can do it with another church. We can see someone else come in. But see, this church has history. This is, this is a church in Ephesus that was started by the Apostle Paul. For three years, it says in Acts, that he was there teaching and preaching every single day. 
He left the church to his disciple Timothy. The Apostle John was there in the same church. And so history tells us that they heeded this warning. History tells us that when Jesus spoke to them, that they heeded this warning, and exactly what Jesus told them to do, they did. They repented. And they continued. And Jesus did not remove their lampstand because they became effective for the Lord even more than they, they, they were at that point. I want to tell you that that's possible here tonight, too. See, there's nothing supernatural about the name that's on the outside of this building. Did you know that? Jesus does not owe us just because we're still here. Right? What Jesus is looking for tonight in the potter's house in Virginia Beach, he's looking for people who still love him. That's it. Love him enough to live for him. That we're not just busy showing up for church services. Some, some of us may need to repent before he removes the lampstand from its place. And we close then with a promise. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. Everybody say overcomes. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, this is amazing. This is incredible. The tree of life. Which tree are we talking about? We're talking about the tree that was in the garden of Eden. The one that they had access to at the beginning. The one that they, they would eat the fruit from this tree of life. This is how... Adam and Eve would have had eternal life. They, God designed them to live forever because they had access to this tree and the fruit that it produced. And when they sinned, the Bible says that they were cut off from this garden which contained this tree of life. And because they could no longer eat from that fruit, then the course of nature had its way, the course of sin and fallen nature, and they began to get sick, and eventually they died, and they passed that on to all of us. Thanks a lot. Jesus says, to him who overcomes, you'll have another chance to eat from that tree. That tree is revealed at the end of this book, Revelation 22, verse 1, as John gets a preview of the eternal Jerusalem, the heaven that we are destined for as believers. Listen to this. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So proceeding out from the throne of God for all of the rest of eternity, there in the center of the city of the new Jerusalem is the tree of life, the same one from the Garden of Eden, now growing on either side of this crystal river. And it says the nations will come and eat of its fruit. And this is how we'll, we'll be able to have eternal life. Isn't that incredible? But I want to close with this truth. It's not just for everybody. 
It's not to him who barely hangs in there. It's not to him who limps across the finish line. It is him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. We are called, beloved, to an overcoming Christian experience. Not just barely Christian. I'm just barely saved, Pastor. I'm just hanging in there. I'm just surviving. No, this is not the promise that God gave to you. God created us. He did not, listen, Jesus did not die and rise from the dead for you to be barely saved. We are risen. We are risen with Christ. That's what baptism shows us. Dead to our sins and alive in Christ. This is what our baptism in water symbolized. That we can live an overcoming lifestyle. And yes, we're going to face difficulties. And yes, this life is going to present challenges. And yes, we're going to have to live in a culture that has a completely different standard of morality. But that doesn't mean you can't be an overcomer. Don't look around at other Christians and say, well, I guess I'm better than that person, so I'm okay. Are you an overcomer tonight? Are you overcoming your sin, your bad habits, your lack of character? This is where God can challenge us tonight. To him who overcomes, I will give to you the tree of life. We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vvph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website at vvph.org and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, Love God and love people. As we close this service this evening, I want to make a simple call.